As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Instead of taking up that gym membership that you wouldn't use even if the gyms were open, how's about subscribing to The Athletic for just £4 a month? You'll get unrivaled football coverage with analysis and in-depth features from the very best writers around, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff, and ad-free versions of all The Athletic's podcasts, including this one. Find out more and sign up today at theathletic.com forward slash league show. Hello guys, thanks for tuning in to this week's Totally Football League show, Extra Time. For the first time in a few weeks, as we were given a bit of extra time off of our own. We are Ali Maxwell and George Ellick, very much the Andre Ayew to my Jamal Lowe. And George, (laughs) why don't you give the listeners a little preview of what we've got coming up today? A jam-packed show as ever, Ali. And first up, we are going to be speaking to Michael Appleton, Lincoln City manager, top of the table in League One, Michael Appleton, who has been at home recovering from COVID. So we'll be speaking to him about the ongoing COVID issues in football, as well as Lincoln's fantastic first half of the season. Then we'll get into our midweek previews in League One and League Two. No championship games, of course, because of the FA Cup, but we'll also be previewing a couple of games in the FA Cup, a couple of potential banana skins. But firstly, let's speak to Michael Appleton. At Paddy Power, we know competition for the remote control can be fierce at the weekends. So, in order to give the non-football-loving occupants of your house something to do, here are some of our top suggestions. Go for a walk. Walk the dog. Walk to the shops. Go cycling. Cycle the dog. Recycle the dog. Just go! All very good options, we say. And that's not the only one. If one leg of your 4 plus fold acker lets you down, get a free bet on all football leagues and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg, on an exclusive exclude shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. You're listening to the Totally Football League show, Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell, sponsored by Paddy Power. Now, we're always very grateful to managers and players when they take the time to speak to us on the Totally Football League show, Extra Time, but that's never been more the case than today because we've got Michael Appleton on the line who is at home recovering from COVID. So before we get into any of the football nonsense, Michael, how are you? How are the family and, and how has it been over the last week or so? 
Hi, George. Yeah, it's it, it's been tough. I'm not going to lie. Um, the first three or four days when the symptoms came about, it was very very tough. Struggle to 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 get out of bed and and do your day to day stuff, normal stuff. Uh, the last four or five days have have uh, been a bit easier for me, and I've been able to look after our three and a half month old son. But as this type of illness and virus uh, um, has shown that obviously. Once one partner gets it, the likelihood is if you can't isolate to the point of obviously being in separate places, the likelihood is your, your, your partner's going to get it. So my wife's been rough for the last four or five days. So I'm just hoping that, you know, in the next 24, 48 hours, she comes out of, um, you know, that sort of place where she is now and in a sort of place where I am, where you feel it if you're on your mend. And Michael, while you were suffering, uh, your Lincoln City side travelled to AFC Wimbledon, a game that you won 2-1. Um, there was a bit of reporting around the game that came from the Wimbledon side mainly that they had requested the game to be postponed, but that they had been told by the EFL that they would prefer it to go ahead, which it did. Obviously, you had to make do with watching it from home. So I guess the dual question is, could you talk about the situation around postponing or not postponing the game with you at home? And then what was the experience like of having to manage your team or just watch from afar on iFollow? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the actual game being called off or, or being played, from what I was told from our club was that if the game... Uh, was going to be called off. It was Wimbledon that would have to call the game off, or us uh, as the clubs, not the EFL. That was the impression that I was given. And as soon as I knew the game was going to be played, it was just a matter of making sure that we had, or I had some kind of communication to the staff uh, on the day. Um, and, it, and it was your very basic stuff. I was on the phone for, for most of the game to a uh, one of our analysts uh, who was in the stand and he was getting the information to the side of the pitch to, to our first team staff. And then at half time, um, I think from what I'm aware, I was on loudspeaker uh, while speaking to the um, to, to, to the staff before they sort of gave the, the messages to the players. But I, said, I, I, I think I've already said it in the, in the, like the local interview that the staff on the day and the players on the day were fantastic because it was a difficult day because on the same day, we had um, Harry Anderson showing sort of symptoms who missed the game as well and has since been tested positive. So I, I can completely get where Wimbledon were and, you know, I suppose the clarity or the sort of lack of clarity is the reason why there was a bit of frustration whether they felt the game should have gone ahead or not. And obviously, I think going forward, I think until the testing comes in like it is next week and you get, you know, that tested twice a week, you're going to get a little bit more clarity of whether the game should should or not go ahead. Before we, we get on to the on-pitch stuff, because there is a lot to talk about in terms of Lincoln's start to the season, just at the moment we're obviously in quite an uncertain situation with the EFL, with, with the postponements and fixtures stacking up as well. Um, the EFL and the PFA have confirmed they'll be introducing twice weekly tests from now on going forward, or well, from next Monday going forward. But what are your thoughts on whether or not football should be continuing, whether there should be a circuit breaker, as some clubs have pointed out? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's a difficult one. It's, I mean, I think if there's a circuit breaker, I think most of the football league and the clubs will probably want to know that, that if the science behind it would actually completely clear, whether it was a two-week, three-week, four-week, whatever it may be, if during that time it would sort of, 
you know, eradicate the fact or any possibility of anyone catching COVID going forward because I suppose that the worry is that you have a break for a month and then all of a sudden you play, I don't know, half a dozen games and get through into March and April and then have you got to do the same thing again and then you get to a position where can you actually finish the season at, at a time where you can get yourself prepared for the following season. So um, I think the, the 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 idea of now bringing in the test in twice a week is going to help, I think, you know, whether there's whether clarity can be brought into the situation in terms of whether you've got a certain amount of players and if you've got a certain amount of players who are tested positive, then the game's called off automatically. I think leaving it into the club's hands is 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 quite difficult because you know there'll be certain clubs who will see certain players being more important to them than, than others. That's the reality. Unfortunately, that's you know we've we've all got squads and we've all got players who who have played more minutes than the others for the reason. So I think for whatever reason, we have to find a place where, one, if the player's got symptoms, then his safety has to come as absolute paramount and the rest of the players' safety has to come paramount. So if he's come in contact with them, then they're going to have to isolate and you're going to have to obviously, uh, as a coach and a manager, use the players that you've got at your disposal. Now, uh, on to the pitch and I mean what a start to the season it's been Michael your Lincoln City side at top of league one four points clear of second place uh, as we talked this morning and you've won 13 of your first 20 league games when we spoke to you pre-season back in August you said top half finish is definitely the key objective and and anything further than that might be a year or two down the line although you, you did show a lot of ambition then uh, how surprised are you by how quickly this group has progressed into being such a, a winning unit? Yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised. There's no doubt about it. I think when I spoke to you guys, we were actually up in, in Manchester at the time, getting away and having a few days away. And it was quite an exciting time for us because there were so many new faces in the group. You know, we, we, we had to release 11 players during, the, the I think it was the first lockdown, which was difficult. But then we, we put a lot of work in during lockdown and just as we were coming out before getting, getting back into pre-season about bringing the type of players that we wanted to bring in and the, the age group and the, and the style of the player that we were looking for different positions. So I think the reason, you know, I think it, I think it was fair in what I said at the start in terms of the top half finish, you, you know, prior to last season, the club had not been in League One for over 20 years. Um, and I think even now, you know, we... we we're showing signs of a group that got off to a really, really good start. Uh, we've got a little bit of momentum with us, but you know, I think if you look at the games as well, um, there's no doubt about it. Even in some of the games that haven't got gone our way, we've been really, really competitive, and we've took the opposition right to the to the death. Apart from possibly the Sunderland game, which got away with us a little bit. So I've been delighted with them. We're way ahead of schedule. You know, it's easy for me to say that. I know that, and I understand that, but. I did say that, you know, in the earlier part of the season when we won the first four games as well, we're, we're ahead of schedule. I suppose the really, really pleasing thing from my point of view and hopefully for all Lincoln City supporters is that, you know, I, I do feel this group can get bigger and stronger, you know, whether it's between now and the end of the season or next season. I do think we're going to sort of, you know, um, hit new heights uh, along the way at some point. Michael, we know that that uh, in previous roles you've, you've built... <laughs> 
great contacts with various clubs in the Premier League and in the Championship, uh, done a lot of work within academies as well. And that is reflected in some of the loan moves that you've made, certainly. Uh, and I noticed that there's a, a Manchester City youngster that's joined this week as well, who will hopefully be really exciting like so many of the others. But I did just want to ask about Brennan Johnson, because um, although it's it's been a an all-round football team this season, hasn't it? Johnson has really sparkled at times. And there's kind of two aspects to this. Firstly, George did an amazing piece of uh, research the other day uh, and, and discovered, if you will, uncovered, I guess, <clears throat> found out that, that you spent some time with his father, uh, David Johnson, in the youth system at Manchester United. Uh, I wonder if that had anything to do with Brennan turning up at, at Lincoln this season. And then uh, on the slightly less exciting side, there's always going to be concern about lone players being recalled, especially because it happened last season with Tyler Walker and Nottingham Forest, his parent club. But also we've seen this week a lot of players recalling lone players. So uh, anything to do with your relationship with his dad and how concerned are you about him potentially being recalled? Yeah, well, I, th I think well, you, you're spot on. So yeah, whether you've stumbled on it and or, or had some brilliant research, George, I don't know. But yeah, I, listen, me, me and David go way back um, for when we first joined Man United. Probably, um, I've known David since I probably was say 15. Um, we played in the same team at United together. We were in the same scholarship year together. Uh, played in the same youth team. Um, so obviously we've, we've kept in touch, you know, over the years. I actually went, and I, I said this to, to Brennan when I first met him, I actually went to David and Alison's wedding. Yeah, so back in the day, years and years ago, I was, um, yeah, I was, at, I was at their wedding. So, yeah, we do go way back. And um, I've been speaking to David all through lockdown and, and uh, prior to obviously Brennan coming in, just, you know, just, to, just exactly what I've just said to you guys in terms of, look, we'll, we'll create an environment where the, It'll be down to him. If he doesn't succeed, it won't be something that we've done and stuff. It'll be, you know, down to him not taking his opportunities. So he's come in, as you guys know, he, he's been fantastic. He's really enjoyed himself. He's played in numerous positions for us. Um, he's got lots of assists, lots of goals, which, is, which has been pleasing. I think in terms of the, the uh, potential recall, I think you've always got to be mindful of that. I think last season, the, mo the most difficult thing about last season's one was because it, it was so late. And I think in, with most loans, you always have a, a window of opportunity for both clubs, maybe a week or so, where they can recall or you can send them back. And it's not, that's not obviously no different with any players that you sort of bring in. I think, I think the mistake last year was probably allowing that window to be right at the back end of January. So obviously then it makes it very, very difficult to replace them. So with the, the loan players that we've got in at the minute, you know, none of them will be going beyond the sort of the middle of January in terms of being able to, to be recalled. We just got to make sure and be mindful that if one of two of them do get recalled, that we have got people ready to sort of come in and, and, and replace them if that, if that happens. It'll be gutting. I don't think it's something that Brennan, David, myself would, would want. And I mean that with the greatest respect because obviously he's getting lots and lots of game time. But I'm also mindful of the fact that you know, he is, he is uh, someone else's player and we've got to be respectful of that. We're going to let you get back to your recovery in a second, Michael. But just a yeah. last question on, on the game this weekend, hosting Peterborough, uh, another side who will have aspirations for promotion this season. Will you be back in the dugout or are you going to have to miss this one? And how are you feeling going into a game? Right now, surely at this stage of the season, you're looking at these clubs and thinking, you know, these are games we've got to win if we're going to, if we're going to stay up at the top of the table. 
Yeah, I mean, I should be back in the dugout. My isolation finishes tomorrow. You know, as long as uh, my wife's capable of looking after the little one tomorrow. Yeah, I think you're dead right, George. It's one of them where um, we're playing against a side who I, I feel are going to be really, really motivated. They've had, what, 25 days or so off now. I almost sort of relate it to like 11 players coming back from injury or the first game of the season. You know, it's been that long since they've played, obviously, and they've had to shut down their training ground because of COVID, etc. previous and, you know, playing other clubs that have had COVID cases. So they're going to be really, really motivated uh, they're going to come out of the blocks really, really quickly, and we have to be aware of that. But like you just said, you know, if we've got um, aspirations to to stay where we are and stay in around where we are, then these are the type of games that certainly we've got to, um, you know, we've got to go and take points from and even even win them. It's a great weekend of of League One football. A lot of those games televised as well. It is a, a reduced fixture list, but League One in focus, I think, for many this weekend. So we can't wait to see how you get on against Peterborough. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time out to, to join us. We wish you and your squad and staff all the best, firstly in terms of, of health, but also in footballing terms as well. And well, we spoke to you around five months ago, and I reckon if we give you a call in five months' time around May, who knows what the conversation might be about? But uh, it's been great to have you back on. Brilliant. Cheers, fellas. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. On now to our League One section and we're going to be previewing the few games that are taking place this weekend but in typical timing straight after the Monday Totally Football League show there was a managerial departure in League One with Joey Barton leaving Fleetwood Town. Ali managerial departure or a sacking what do you reckon? I mean I'm still trying to work it out based on the evidence in front of us George it's not been that clear and it's still a bit of a head scratcher I mean first and foremost Fleetwood are are 10th in League One they're not a million miles off the playoff places and of course that's where they finished last season and I think the expectation was that they would punch their way into the top six this year and it hasn't quite happened for them there's been good runs of form but they started slowly and at the moment they're on a run of just one win in their last six and so it's it's always a little bit confusing when Joey Barton is involved thankfully Greg O'Keefe of The Athletic has filled in some of the details he said that Fleetwood chairman Andy Pilly had offered Barton a new deal but that Barton although he didn't downright refuse it indicated he'd rather discuss it just before it was due to expire at the end of the season this is believed to have caused consternation behind the scenes with fears that important players may be reluctant to commit their futures to Highbury until popular manager Barton had done the same the impact at COVID-19 has been felt at Fleetwood like many other clubs all other clubs of course and Barton had been concerned over suggestions that some backroom staff may have to be cut as the cl- as the club sought to deal with the financial issues caused by the pandemic, so there's kind of a few different parts to that. It, you know, 
Has Barton been told that budgets are going to have to be slashed and decided that he doesn't really fancy working in those environments? The chairman in his own statement did use the phrase, today's decision was a tough one for me to make, Mm. which kind of hints to a sacking. But by all accounts, it's an amicable departure. Lots of lovely words said by Barton about Fleetwood and the chairman. Lots of lovely words said about Barton by Fleetwood and their chairman, Andy Pilly. So it's all a little bit strange. Probably not as... as, um, controversial as many people might have assumed when they first saw the headline uh but barton is the current second favorite for the sheffield wednesday job which is an interesting wrinkle he said in his own statement that he was going to take some time to study other coaches and get ready for the next opportunity now i must stress that there's been no particular reports that he has put himself forward for the sheffield wednesday job or that there has been contact made for him um no one seems to know what's happening with that sheffield wednesday vacancy but barton is in the frame. As for Fleetwood Town, the current favourite for that job, and quite a strong favourite as we record on Thursday morning, is Tim Cahill, a Mm. former legendary Australian uh, goal-scoring midfielder who I think we've all seen do a bit of punditry over the last year or two uh, and could join Harry Kuehl as former Socceroos uh, managing (laughs) in the EFL. I'd be pretty up for that, Um, but it's an interesting situation. A good job to take, I think you'd say, uh, especially for a rookie manager. And we'll have more on this, certainly on the Totally Football League show on Monday, if anything comes up between now and then. Potentially, we might pick this up next week. Um, but, but looking at League One this weekend as a whole, I said in our interview with Michael Appleton, it's a little bit of a spotlight on the league. Although there's only six fixtures, four of them are on TV this weekend, George. One on Friday night, which you're about to chat us through, and then three back to back to back on Saturday. Charlton versus Accrington. Live on Sky on Friday, George, what catches your eye about this game? Plenty. Absolutely loads, as every game in League One and League Two for that matter. Um, yeah, this is an interesting one between a side in Charlton who are not in the best of form and a side in Accrington who haven't really played much football this season. Uh, Paddy Power, the sponsor, our sponsors on this show, have Charlton as the 11 to 8 favourites. The draw is 23 to 10, and Accrington are 2 to 1. And if we look at Charlton, <clears throat> they've won just one game in their last six in the league. And normally, when this happens, you can kind of put it down to difficult opposition. That's not really the case here. They've played MK Dons, Shrewsbury, AFC Wimbledon, Swindon, Plymouth and Hull. The majority of those teams find themselves in the bottom half of the table. Their poorest performance of the season came against Hull in their last in their last one, coming up against the Hull side who were also going through a tricky patch of form. They were winless in their last three, but Hull pretty comfortably won that game and Charlton didn't really offer anything going forward. What we have seen now in the first week of January is this is the first time that we that, that Charlton have a transfer window under a full transfer window under new ownership. And there has been some action. Ronnie Schwartz has come in from Michelin. Liam Miller's come in on loan from Liverpool. And we expect these are going to be the first couple of signings of what could be plenty in January under the new owner. Steve Gallen, I think the head of recruitment at Charlton deserves our respect. He's, he's somebody who's brought in a lot of good players over the last couple of seasons. They made a pretty good fist of, of staying up in the championship last campaign. And of course, their last season in League One under Lee Bowyer ended in promotion at Wembley. I don't know about you, Ali, but I don't know much about Schwartz. I don't know much about Miller. It's going to be interesting <laughs> to see how these players do settle in. But I know that Charlton fans haven't been particularly keen on some of their striking options. I think in particular, Omar Bogle seems to have disappointed at the Valley. But this isn't an ideal game for Charlton uh, on the back of such a poor run of form because Accrington 
are this season's surprise package for those who still reckon that Accrington should be towards the bottom end of League One. And they should be based on their budget and based on, on, on all the things that go against them. Um, they've only had their 17 games in the season so far and they're sitting in eighth position, just two points behind Charlton with three games in hand. So this is their 17th game. They've played 16 games so far. Their last game was on December the 19th. So a long old break. I'll let you decide whether that's a benefit or a hindrance. That was a nil draw against Blackpool, a game which they totally dominated. They've kept eight clean sheets in their 16 games so far. You know, they're back three, whether it's uh, Burgess, Hughes and Sykes or, or Michael Nottingham coming in. It's normally three of those four have been the, the kind of the main reason for this good run. There was one aberration in the middle of it, which was a 4-3 defeat against Wigan, uh, which kind of went completely against the form book and the way that they play. But in general, this is an Accrington side who have enough attacking talent. You know, Dion Charles is probably the star man. Colby Bishop, another player who scores a few goals as well. But the key is, is defensively. And this is a Charlton side at the moment who are struggling to score goals, coming up against a team who, you know, if they'd played as many games as others, you know, if we looked back at the old dreaded PPG, they would be right towards the top end of the table. I think the only reason we're not talking about Accrington more is because they sit in eighth rather than higher up because of the postponements. How this plays out going forward, you know, we talk about COVID, we talk about pausing the season, we talk about all the postponements. Accrington are the side at the moment where you wonder how they are going to be able to cope with the fixture congestion going forward, especially they're a club that we associate with postponements due to inclement weather anyway, given the uh, you know the pitch up there often gets frozen. So it's going to be interesting to see, but they come into this one fresh. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we see them um, really make a good fist out of this. Um, I don't think Accrington are there by chance. They're a very, very good League One side and any John Coleman side, as we know, will continue to punch above their weight. So I'm really excited to see this especially as it's on the telly I think this could be the game where people start to really take Accrington seriously and who knows if you keep watching the coverage of that game after it's finished you might catch a couple of your favorite podcasters <laughs> pop up in the studio at some point Maybe. Um, look George I, I you're right to suggest that I don't know much about Ronnie Schwartz but I would like to commission <laughs> a fly on the wall documentary uh, about his time at Charlton Schwartz and all we'll call it uh, wow. and I'll leave you to do the rest of the details and maybe pitch that to some major broadcasters uh, so that's the first televised League One game of the weekend on Friday night you've got Lincoln City against Posh at 12 30. I think that is appointed viewing for anyone who listens to this pod and who wants to see this Michael Appleton side uh, for themselves. You've got Sunderland Hull at 7.45 on Saturday night. Now, both Sunderland and Hull were meant to play someone else uh, this weekend, but because those games were postponed due to the impacts of COVID on the opposition, they realised that their Boxing Day game, which had been cancelled, might fit quite nicely into this slot. So <laughs> quite late doors this. Wednesday night, it was decided that Sunderland and Hull would play each other and that that would be live on TV. But in between those two games, the Battle of the Towns at 5.30 is what I'm going to talk about. Ipswich against Swindon. Uh, Ipswich, a little bit like Accrington, have had quite the gap here. Uh, they haven't played since the 15th of December. A number of their players and staff, including Paul Lambert, tested positive on the 18th of December and they postponed two fixtures initially before their game against Fleetwood that was meant to be the Monday just been was called off after Fleetwood suffered an outbreak 
of their own. So I hope you're keeping up with that. One interesting thing about this Ipswich game on the weekend is that they've had about 10 first-team players, like genuine first-team players, out injured before their last game against Burton. And I'm interested to see how many of those players will be back for this. Certainly it's been an excuse of Paul Lambert's for poor performances and poor form. And, you know, I think there's some merit to it. Most teams would miss 10 genuine first-team contributors. So I'm willing to cut him a little bit of slack. But the pressure is very much still on Paul Lambert, despite this period of of absence from league football. Uh, For Swindon, it'll be a 10-day break since they last played. They were thumped by MK Dons 4-1 on the 29th of December. And since a famous derby win against Oxford, Swindon have not backed that up with performances or results. They've lost five and drawn one, so just one point in their last six league games. And, you know, when you're down at the bottom, that is not ideal. Uh, From John Sheridan's 10 games so far, they've got eight points total. So they certainly haven't had the the desired new manager bounces. Sheridan replaced Richie Wellens, who, of course, moved down to League Two with Salford. Now, Sheridan has often pointed to shortcomings in terms of creating chances, but also shooting themselves in the foot at the back with stupid mistakes early on in games. It's an interesting one because I think, you know, as much as you can judge a team on paper, when you look at this Swindon side, at first you think this isn't stacked with League One quality. And yet I sort of think they have the individual players who, on their day, and maybe inspired by the sky cameras, knowing there's a few more eyeballs on them, could come up trumps and actually give Ipswich a bit of a hard time here. Jack Payne, creative attacking midfield player. Matt Smith on loan from Arsenal has probably been Swindon's best player overall this season in midfield. And then you've got Dylan Jayasimi and Tyler Smith, pacey, skillful attacking players as well. So, you know, Ipswich have lost all five games against the teams above them in the league, but their record against those below them is 10 wins, two draws and one defeat. So they are the rightful favourites, of course, with Paddy Power, 8-11 to to win this game. Swindon at 3-1 to and the draw with 13-5. to I just have a, a sneaky feeling that despite the league positions and despite Swindon's poor form, I wouldn't expect Ipswich to dominate in the manner that you'd expect a team towards the top at home against a team towards the bottom. But... You know, regardless of whether there might be some rustiness from either side, there are good players on the pitch here. I'm expecting an interesting game, uh, certainly one to watch this weekend in League One. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Okay, George, just like in League One, we've got six League Two fixtures this weekend. A number of League Two sides are playing in the FA Cup third round, and we're going to talk about two of them in just a minute. But across League Two this weekend, which game stands out for you? Well, I am delighted to finally be able to talk about Southend because I feel like Southend's uptick in form has come right in the middle of our Totally Football League extra time blind spot. <laughs> we had our own little Christmas break and in that time Southend have absolutely rattled up the table from 24th to 
still 24th, but much closer to safety than they were before. They've lost just one of their last six games. Uh, and here they host a Barrow side who are a bit on their own little mini run of good form since parting ways with David Dunn. But I'm going to focus on Southend first here and the incredible job that Mark Mosley has done to get Southend back being competitive. And this is no coincidence they've suddenly turned their form around. They were absolutely terrible for the first 20 or so games of the season, but their transfer embargo was lifted on the 12th of December. And this coincided with a return of injury from Alan McCormack, who I think was the one signing from the summer who we all anticipated would be a good one for Southend, a player who won a promotion last season with Northampton, a very canny League Two operator. Simeon Akinola and Sam Hart were two players who signed for Southend during during the transfer embargo, so they couldn't even play until mid-December. Their arrival in the team has, has also meant a turnaround of fortunes. Greg Halford, a player who, who came in after the embargo, was lifted and immediately scored. They signed Louis Walsh on loan on, on Boxing Day. It's a yes from me, I have to say. Um, it's just a different. It's a different team now. This side, they are a different proposition for oppositions to come up against. And they immediately. I'm. I'm not here saying that they're suddenly uh, one of the better sides in in League Two at all, but they are much much improved. And anybody who had them down, myself included, as relegation fodder, as destined for non-league, um, we've had to 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 reevaluate what we think of them. And I, for one, am delighted to see it. I think too often in League Two, we see sides down on their luck, desperation towards the bottom end. And I often say it's become a bit of a cliche. You know, League Two is a very hard league to get relegated from. If anything, this season, it's proving the opposite because any team who seems to drop down into those bottom two spots, whether it's Southend, whether it's Scunthorpe, whether it's Grimsby, Stevenage, seem to follow it up with a couple of wins to get themselves out of it. And that is why we're seeing a Barrow side just a couple of spots above them in 21st. Now, I personally thought that the decision to sack David Dunn seemed like a pretty harsh one. We regularly spoke about how Barrow would play pretty well in games and end up coming away from them with no points or just the the draw. And it felt like they were going to get there in time. But since David Dunn was sacked, two wins and a draw for Barrow and they've appointed Michael Jolly as the new manager. I would recommend anybody out there. I want to be careful what I say because I hope one day we get to speak to Michael Jolly on the pod. But I would recommend anybody out there who wants to learn more about Michael Jolly to go and read his Wikipedia page because it doesn't take an expert to work out who's written it. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, a fair bit of um, <laughs> justification for his for his managerial decisions at Grimsby. But it is right to point out that at Grimsby, he did do a fairly good job. And I often think that when you look at, at clubs like Grimsby and you look at how they're the, the, the managers who've taken over after them have got on. You know, Grimsby's highest ebb since they came back up from non-league has probably been under Jolly, who had them at, at stages on the brink of of, uh, of the playoffs. But as a Wikipedia page will tell you, <laughs> he won three Manager of the Month awards in six months, which does say something about what he was doing. Citation needed. Citation. I think the citations are all there, so you don't have to worry about that. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm intrigued. Often we talk about you know loan signings and how the first loan is always difficult. I think that's the same with, man- with managerial appointments. I think Michael Jolly would have learned a hell of a lot um, in his in his time at Grimsby, and I think we can be quite excited to see what he brings to Barrow. Sadly for Michael, he couldn't get rid of the the part on the Wikipedia page where it talks about why he was sacked from Grimsby, which was due to uh, an expletive laden conversation with local journos so hopefully the Barrow local press will get on with him better than the Grimsby local press did but uh, 
But yeah, it's been a good run of form for Barrow in that time that they've scored six goals in those three games, conceding just one. So maybe actually, given that we didn't know too much about Barrow before they came up from non-league, maybe David Dunn was actually not doing too well with the group of players he had at his disposal. Great to see Scott Quigley with three goals in these three games, a player who I think we expected to be their leading goal scorer, who'd maybe struggled for form a bit in the EFL since coming up. So it's 24th versus 21st, sure, but it's actually a game between two of League Two's most informed clubs and two teams who I think could possibly get their way out of danger. For Southend, it's crucial. You know, a win here will put them just one point behind Barrow and therefore drag themselves ever closer to the rest of the, the division. The odds suggest that Barrow are the likely winners. Southend are 21 to 10, the draw 23 to 10, Barrow 11 to 10. In my opinion, Southend continue to be underestimated by plenty. Sounds like Southend's got some talent, if anything, uh, with Louis Walsh joining this week. I mean, classic mainstream pick from you, two of the, you know, two sides in decent form, because I'm going right to the other end of the form table, Port Vale against Grimsby Town. And there's a newsy aspect to this as well, because not long after Jerry Barton's departure from Fleetwood was announced, we also heard that Port Vale had sacked John Askey on Monday, and therefore they head into this with first team coach Danny Pugh in interim charge. Just to take a quick look at the Askey sacking, I think uh, it's one of those where there really can be very few complaints. They had six wins in their first 10 league games this season to be in and around those playoff places where many thought um, they should finish this season after stopping last season just outside and feeling like there was quite a lot of progress at the club, that they were looking upwards rather than downwards. But since that 10th league game, one win, three draws, Eight defeats, just six points from 12 league games, and they have plummeted down the table. They are the side in the worst form in League Two, uh, and John Askey lost his job as a result. Uh, something sort of tinged with sadness, I think, really, because not only did last season go very well, and there was a brilliant feeling and vibe around the club under new ownership and, and the team doing well on the pitch, but also because John Askey's father, Colin, is a Port Vale legend, and John Askey spent some time at the club as a youth player. So sort of family ties between the Askey family and Port Vale, and it certainly wasn't with any sort of glee or pleasure that, uh, that he was sacked. At as for the names in the frame, Graham Alexander, not long removed from Salford in the same division. He is one of the favourites, but also some really interesting names. Emil Heskey uh, is linked to getting his first management job and Frank Sinclair as well, who is part of the coaching staff and has been in and around Port Vale in the last year or so. Rob Page, I think, is another pretty interesting name. He's always been a quite a popular coach and uh, and is known around Port Vale thanks to previous uh, time there, but is currently involved with the Welsh FA setup. So not sure if he would give that up to, to move to Burslem. But we'll we'll wait and see. We'll cover this in more detail, of course, when someone is appointed. Whoever does take over Vale inherits an experienced squad. And that might be a little bit of a, a euphemism experienced squad because one way of looking at it is it's the second highest average age in the league and maybe a few too many players potentially on the decline. Maybe that's why we've seen this poor run of form. I don't think things are as bad as a slide all the way down to the relegation places with, would suggest. But whoever comes in will need to oversee a, a, an overhaul of the squad in the coming windows, which which will add a sort of tough wrinkle, potentially an exciting wrinkle for, for some managers. This weekend, it's Danny Pugh taking charge against a Grimsby side whose manager, Paul Hurst, 
is taking charge of his second game in this spell as Grimsby manager, but his 316th, if you include uh, his previous spell, where he brought Grimsby back into the EFL from non-league in 2016. Um, his first game in charge last weekend, they lost 2-1 to Cambridge. In doing so, they dropped into the relegation zone. They've been on really poor form, Grimsby. A lot of off-field distractions, I think it's fair to say. Not just um, former manager Ian Holloway resigning, um, complaining about some too much input from prospective owners, those bidders, have had their bid accepted by the outgoing chairman, John Fenty. This is very good news in the eyes of the fans. It's currently in the hands of the EFL to go through the, the necessary owners and directors tests before they are confirmed as the new owners of Grimsby. But I think with new ownership, with Paul Hurst back in the dugout, there's a real feeling of positivity now after such a uh, such a turbulent few weeks and months for Grimsby. Um, Hurst himself is, fair to say, not too enamoured with the squad left to him. Immediately said he needs players in. He also said, in terms of a lack of creativity in this Grimsby town side, you can put a dog on the pitch and it will run around, but you won't do very well with 11 dogs. Uh, I think that's <laughs> something we can all get behind. Uh, anyway, his... K9-11 will be travelling to Vale this weekend. It's a team with five points from their last 10 games and a new manager. Travelling to a team with six points from their last 10 games and a caretaker manager. And I have no idea what will happen, how this one will play out. Uh, Paddy Power think that Port Vale are the 10-11 favourites. Grimsby 12-5 to to win this one and 5-2 to the draw. But we've also, George, this weekend got FA Cup third round action. And I don't want to start with a negative, but I think it's fair to say that because of everything that's going on in football and in in the wider world, this is not as great an FA Cup third round proper as we could have had. There have been uh, plenty of COVID outbreaks across the EFL, which has impacted teams' preparation. Of course, there won't be any fans in the ground and therefore you know, that buzz that comes with a potential upset won't be present. And it, it also impacts, sadly, in business terms, the amount of revenue that these lower league sides will get from big ties. But there are, in footballing terms, some really interesting ties this weekend to keep your eye on. What do you think is the, the, the best one? What stands out most for you? Yeah, there, there are loads. Um, you know, as you know, as somebody who's known me for a long time, I absolutely love the FA Cup. I love the EFL Cup. As a fan of an EFL side, I, I think playing a, you know, or winning a big cup tie probably, for me, in many ways, trumps most things that happen in the league. Um, and it's a massive shame that this time we're not going to see uh, fans at these games. But but nonetheless, it's an opportunity still um, for, for clubs to, to have a good cup run and get, get some revenue and get some TV money at some stage. The game I'm going to pick is Exeter against Sheffield Wednesday. Now, anybody who's been following the last week or so in football will know that both Sheffield Wednesday and Derby County both had to close their training grounds uh, pretty soon after their Friday night game last week, in which due to obviously due to COVID, COVID outbreaks. And this means we are unsure as to the strength of team that either will be able to put out. I mean, there's more kind of talk online about Derby having to play a team full of, of youth players against Chorley. Uh, with Sheffield Wednesday, we're not quite so sure. But looking at Paddy Power's prices, where Exeter are two to one, the draw is twenty-three to ten, and Sheffield Wednesday are thirteen to ten. Now I know Sheffield Wednesday are having a poor season, but I'm still pretty sure that if they had their full first team available, they would be heavily odds on here. So um, we we can probably anticipate a poorer Sheffield Wednesday side. But this is exciting for me because of Exeter. 
This is an incredibly exciting Exeter side. We just have to look at their recent form to see that. You know, in their last six games, they've won three of them. Right, so not 50% of their game is not amazing. They've scored 20 goals and conceded 10 in that time. 30 goals in their last six games. That is absolutely remarkable. Um, and that is kind of perfectly set up for a good cup tie because often when you kind of get yourself excited about a cup tie between an EFL, well, between a League 2 or a League 1 side up against a Championship or a Premier League team, often you can kind of see a bit of a mismatch in terms of the attacking talent against the defensive solidity. That won't be the case here, especially if Sheffield Wednesday are having to make changes because of their, their, their COVID issues. We're going to see a really fluid attacking side, so proficient at scoring goals, whether it's Randall Williams, Joel Randall, Ryan Bowman, Matt Jay. This is a unit now under Matt Taylor who know how to find the back of the net, even if they are fairly porous at the back. At least currently, that's not something we would have associated Exeter with last season. Coming up against the Sheffield Wednesday side, who we won't know much about. You know, they're, they're still under a caretaker manager. Um, they've had back-to-back victories, but I'm not haven't been convinced whatsoever by by the performances in either. So this is definitely has to be an upset potential, a banana skin possibly for Sheffield Wednesday. I'm not even sure if Sheffield Wednesday will be too bothered about going out here um, in this game. Does it even count that much of an upset? You know, by the time, if Sheffield Wednesday do have to field 11 youth team players, I'm pretty sure Exeter will be favourites by kickoff. But either way, um, I fancy Exeter to really put on a show here. And given their um, the way their game's been playing out recently, whether it's 5-3 defeats or 6-1 wins, um, for the neutral, it should be a pretty special game to watch. I'm going to talk about the game that I'll be watching on Sunday lunchtime. That is if you eat your lunch late. 1.30pm, live on the BBC, Chelsea against Morecambe at Stamford Bridge. Just a fantastic tie for Morecambe FC. Well-deserved, you'd say, for their progression over the last year and the magnificent form that they're in in League Two. Such a shame that Shrimps fans can't fill Stamford Bridge. And, of course, the fact that because of that, it's not quite the money spinner that it would be in other years where the lower league team gets a share of the gate receipts. But a decent fee for being live on the Beeb and a huge day for them and their fans. It's the first time they're in the third round at all for 18 years. That was 2002, 2003. They were defeated by Ipswich. Now, they've been coping with a COVID outbreak in Morecambe. It was timed very badly or quite well, depending on your view of things. Very badly, because it means that they have been barely able to prepare at all for this game, barely able to train. But at the very least, if you're an optimist, you'd say that actually the isolation period ending in the middle of this week at least means that they can play the game, that they can travel down as a full squad uh, and take on Chelsea with their strongest 11. The isolation period ended on Tuesday evening at 5pm and there are rumours that Derek Adams had them in training at 5.01, which I love. (laughs) You can kind of see why, because Kelvin Meller, the right-back, said they've basically been bored, stuck at home, doing home workouts. Uh, And they were saying it's great to be around the lads, kicking the ball again. We haven't been training as much as we'd like going into the game. But at the same time, we've had a lot of games this season, and that's taken a lot out of the lads. So maybe the little break will have done us some good. Who knows? Something special might happen. The omens aren't great for Morecambe in the sense that in the last few years, when Chelsea have come up against EFL opposition, 
in the Carabao Cup or the FA Cup, they have tended to thrash them, I'm afraid. 6-0 winners against Barnsley earlier this season, 7-1 against Grimsby last season, 4-0 against Hull, 4-0 against Brentford, 5-1 against Forest and 4-1 against Peterborough. Morecambe themselves have pretty bad memories of a 7-0 defeat to Newcastle just a few months ago in the, Carag- in the Carabao Cup. But if you've been reading the media this week, you'll know that it's a pretty good time to play Chelsea. Frank Lampard coming under pressure. Plenty of questions as to whether he knows his best first eleven, as to whether he's getting the best out of some lucrative summer signings. And there's no doubt who heads to Stamford Bridge in the better form. Derek Adams' side with four league wins in a row, five in their last six, sitting pretty in the League 2 playoff places, having, as ever, been tipped for relegation. Derek Adams is getting so much out of this side. A team that know their roles, who fit perfectly in a 4-2-3-1 system. There's a core of 10 players who are pretty much playing every game at the moment, and everything's working very, very well. And certainly compared to your Havertz's and your Werner's, the summer signings have improved things no end, whether it's Adam Phillips on loan from Burnley or Songo or any number uh, of players across this Morecambe side. Now, as I say, the omens aren't great. Paddy Power aren't giving them much of a chance. 35-1 to that Morecambe win this game and Chelsea 1-20 to and the draw 14-1. to But I just think, right, I just think, keep it at 0-0. Let's get Carlos Mendes Gomez one-on-one with the Chelsea right back. Let's get Cole Stockton backing into Andreas Christensen. See if he likes it up him. Let's get Jan Songo, like Pac-Man, snuffing out Chelsea attacks. And let's see what happens here. I think it could be quite interesting indeed. 1.30, live on BBC One. Chelsea against Morecambe. Cannot wait for this one. It's been great to be back giving you the Totally Football League show extra time. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. Thanks very much to Michael Appleton, for joining us and best of luck to Lincoln City for the rest of the season and hope him and his family stay well. Fingers crossed as well, the games we preview do go ahead on Saturday and if they do, the one place to get all of the reaction will be on the Totally Football League show on Monday. And please do ensure that you subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back here again next Thursday with a midweek recap and a weekend preview. You've been listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and by following at the Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football League show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Hello, I'm Ian McIntosh, host of the Football Manager Show by The Athletic. This week, as Marine FC prepared to take on Tottenham Hotspur, we've asked three football manager experts, two football manager experts and me, to take up the challenge themselves in the comfort of their own laptops. They have one chance to guide their plucky minnows to victory. How will they do it? What tricks do they have up their sleeve? And is it okay for a grown man to cry about what is essentially a sentient spreadsheet with a heart of ice? Find out on a very special episode of the Football Manager Show by The Athletic. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. The Athletic.